0: Good morning to you. Morning. I don't know if you watched the Disney Pixar movies, but they had a movie called Cars. And if you watch the movie Cars, there was a tow truck named Mater. And uh, the fellow who voiced Mater is a guy named Larry the Cable Guy. And Larry the Cable Guy has a catchphrase. Do you know it? Get her done. And once Larry was asked why his catchphrase is so much better than other slogans. And in typical form, he explained, well, you can't be at a ball game. And uh, in the ninth inning with two outs, yell to the pitcher, bounty is the quicker picker-upper. It makes no sense. But you could yell, get her done. And everyone would know what you meant. And and so now we're in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a man. Who can get her done? God used Nehemiah to achieve something in 52 days that 50,000 Israelites couldn't manage to do in 95 years. Nehemiah got her done. And he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And so, it begs the question, what separates kingdom accomplishers from mere dreamers? Over the next three Sundays, uh, we will be surveying nine practical biblical principles for kingdom accomplishers that we glean from Nehemiah chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 3. And so I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 2 and verse 9. Nehemiah 2 in verse 9. Now if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you can reach into our pew there and you can grab the the pew Bible and it's on page 504. You'll find Nehemiah 2.9. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and bless our time together in prayer. Father, we invite You today as we journey through Nehemiah that over these next three Sundays You would fill us with Your truth. That You would tell us nine practical, biblical principles for kingdom accomplishers. That we would not just be dreamers and aspirants, but we would be achievers of the things that You set out for us to achieve. We pray that we would glean these truths, that we'd walk in these truths, that we'd integrate these truths in our lives. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So we're going to look at the first part of our two chapters today, we're going to look at Nehemiah 2, beginning at verse 9. Nehemiah 2, 9 says, And then I came to the governors beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite his servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I, took, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dun gate and the spring, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Such was the state of chaos amongst the walls that the ruins were such there was no ability to move. And so then I went up in the night by the valley and I inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then, after he had inspected in secret with discretion, then I said to them, You see the trouble that we're in? how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we His servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Well friends, the first thing that we're going to see in our nine principles over these next three Sundays, the nine principles of kingdom accomplishers, the very first thing we see is that kingdom accomplishers are willing to work under official sanction. Kingdom accomplishers are willing to work under official sanction. Now this seems pretty prima facie, but we miss it a lot in the modern church. One of the reasons why Nehemiah achieved what others only aspired was that Nehemiah was willing to work under official sanction. Now last week, back in chapter 1, we learned that when Nehemiah heard of the destruction of Jerusalem's walls, what did he do? He wept bitterly. And he prayed fervently. And he prayed for four months. For God to open a door for something to be done. And then God gave him a golden opportunity. And he took that momentous moment, that kairos moment, and and he asked the king for permission to go on this mission to bring to fruition that which is in dereliction. To do what none of the people of God had achieved in so many years. Almost a century of sitting in the Holy Land. I want you, though, to notice that Nehemiah operated under official sanction. He had the backing of the proper authorities. He did not strike out on his own agenda, on his own authority. Now, too often, God's people get a bee in their bonnet, and they rush ahead as though they are a law unto themselves. Instead of realizing that there is a proper time and a proper procedure for every matter, as the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 8.6. Ecclesiastes 8, six, there's a proper time and a proper procedure for every matter. Instead of doing all things decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14.40 tells us we ought to do all things decently and in order. We tend in our flesh, in our fallenness, even when we want to follow Jesus, we tend to want to do it our way. We tend to want to do it on our timeline. We tend to want to do it on our own invisible, non-existent authority. Right? That's how it is. Because we are sinners who have been made saints. But the sin nature is not utterly eradicated. And so too often, uh, God's people adopt the world's mentality and methodology of craven presumption, behaving as though it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Nehemiah was different. Nehemiah had God's backing, and God gave him the king's backing in our story. In verse 18, when Nehemiah needed to galvanize the people of God, to put their hand to the plow and not look back, he was able to rightly say, Nehemiah, verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king who had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work Did you know that yes, sometimes we can work around the system? We can. But how much more effective? How much more productive? How much less destructive would it be if we follow God's guidance and work within the system? Kingdom accomplishers are willing to work under official sanction. I want you to notice that the official sanction was a tremendous aid in Nehemiah's crusade. Look at how Nehemiah was able to stride into the city in verse 9. Verse 9, the Bible says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. People who did not want Nehemiah's goals to be achieved. Did not want God's work to be achieved. People who were against. And I gave them what? He was able to hand them something that was bigger than them, something that they had to listen to because He was willing to work under official sanction and not on His own mission. Uh, There was going to be mighty strong opposition to the work of God. And friends, there's always mighty strong opposition to the work of God. Amen? From Genesis to Revelation and every day in church history. There's only opposition to the work of God in days that end in Y. And so there's going to be mighty strong opposition to this great work of God in our story. But from uh, day one, both God's people and God's enemies knew this mission had official sanction. Made it harder to make it stop. Didn't make it impossible. Doesn't mean the enemy didn't try. It just made it harder. Nehemiah carried the royal legal approvals from the king of Persia himself. He came with the king's letters in his hand because he worked with official sanction nehemiah could proactively come to the governors of the province beyond the river and say this is what is going to happen before satan's minions could could mutter and whisper official sanction was a potent deterrent to their malevolent machinations on this matter working under official sanction, offered Nehemiah a modicum of protection. For the king had sent with Nehemiah who and what? The Bible says the king sent with Nehemiah officers of the Persian army and horsemen. That is, the cavalry literally arrived when Nehemiah walked in. So from a long way off, you're watching in the distance and the plume uh, uh, is coming up and you can see it's not a rider, it's several riders, can't you? You can see the cavalry from the king is coming and the officers and the standards are coming and something is happening. You can see this has official sanction. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in a position to roll into your opposition's headquarters with a few tanks it tends to shut the forked tongues, doesn't it? It's better to work under official sanction if at all possible, friends. If you're about to do something on a grand scale, something the enemy will work against at every opportunity, it is better to get official remit than to simply wing it. Hear that, church, that's impatient when the Bible says wait patiently. On the Lord. Romans 13 is, is pretty clear on this subject. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what has been appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. You can get on the wrong side of God's authorities, and you will end up getting clapped for such activity. Number three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. You do what you're supposed to do and generally speaking, you'll be alright. You don't do what you're supposed to do, you're going to see the backhand of God. Then do what is good and you will receive their approval. For He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For He does not bear the sword in vain. For He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries... God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Hmm. That isn't a typo in Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 13, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to his governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence. The ignorance of foolish people, says the Word of God. Our Lord Jesus was clear on this, wasn't He? In Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, 21, Jesus said, Render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? And render unto God the things that are... There's a hierarchy, but there's still authority in each level. Now, there are times, and we have talked about it in various sermon series, where God and Caesar do not see eye to eye. Okay? And, and in those cases, which are much rarer than we like to pretend they are, in, in those cases, we are to follow Acts 5.29. In Acts 5.29, the apostles said, we are to follow God rather than men. Okay? But, but you need to understand that even when we do that, uh, that biblical defiance will always lead to temporal consequence. Now you stand up to the Caesars and the Caesars will not like it. Right? In Acts 5, the apostles were beaten. They were berated. They were publicly humiliated. And they were sternly warned to stop preaching about Jesus Christ. But they would obey God instead of men. And I love... What the apostles say after being beaten, berated, and humiliated, intimidated, and told to be silent, Acts 5.41 says, and they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. There will be times where the human king contradicts the king of kings. And in those times, we must submit to the higher king. The high king of heaven has an eternal throne. The state of New Jersey has a transitional one. But most of the time, our problem is not that we cannot get official sanction. It is that we do not bother to try. We race ahead. And friends, that impatience often leaves us behind in the end. Even within God's church, even within the running of God's house, even within the people of God, too often we would rather race ahead than ask the appropriate ministry or committee or authority uh, for the needed go-ahead in where we're trying to help the church go. Uh, in, in, instead, we, we, we start to usurp God-given authority. And let me tell you, that, that's Unbiblical. And it's unhelpful. You think you're getting there faster. What you're doing is creating new challenges you're not yet aware of. The law of unintended consequences. If we do something unbiblical, it's going to lead to something unhelpful. It will. It will, it will, it will. What is the cost of our thundering ahead on our own mission? And the answer of church history and the Bible is the cost of thundering ahead on our own mission is almost always our unity, isn't it? And friends, next to Jesus Himself, the most precious commodity we have as the body of Christ is our unity. Amen? Our unity in Christ is the difference between peace and hostility in this body. Our unity in Christ is the difference between order and chaos in this church. Uh, Our unity in Christ is the difference between progression and regression in this work of God. And so when any church starts to be run by the strongest personalities and not by God's appointed authorities, ministry becomes unwieldy. Business meetings become unruly. Fellowship becomes unfriendly. And the entire church becomes unhealthy. Amen? It is true. It is true. Well, praise God, that's not the situation we're in, but it's the text we're in, so i got to say it. Remember, I didn't write the book. I just preached from it. All right? We're in a good place. Let's stay in a good place. Amen? All right. Now, since Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, they shall know us by our slick programs and charismatic preacher. No, no, different version. That's the modern version. What's the actual Jesus version? They shall know us by our love. Jesus tells us they shall know us by our love. Since Jesus says that, we need to be much less inclined to jockey and shove because they shall know us by our love. If we value Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that we might be one, that was His prayer, then we must not let our quest for expediency or personal preference nullify Christ's calling by jostling to have our way right away instead of working through official channels to do it the right way. We must be willing to do things decently and in order. It's what He wrote. It's what He said. It's what He commanded. It's what He deserves. It's what He desires. It's what He does. Now, friends, there's sometimes too much New Jersey and not enough Christian in New Jersey Christians. Amen? Friends, we need to be on the potter's wheel. And we need to let His loving thumbs get into us and shape out some of the areas that are rough and bumpy that we've grown up thinking are acceptable, but they're actually unbiblical. We need to let Him make us into something that's beautiful and biblical. Amen? We want more Christian in New Jersey Christian and less New Jersey in our Christian. And that's true in Africa, and that's true in Missouri, and we're just here today. And you're a little aware of where New Jersey shows its head in New Jersey Christians. And that's what we need to be biblical instead of cultural. We need to let Jesus flow through us. The second thing we see in Nehemiah 2 is just because we are working under official sanction. Oh, it's great. I'm working under official sanction. Everything's going to be great. No, it's not. If you're working under official sanction, that does not remove the opposition. That brings you to point two. Kingdom accomplishers understand that there will be multiple layers of opposition in any project that came from Jesus. Because there's a real enemy and who really doesn't want it to be done. Let me say that again. Kingdom accomplishers understand there will be multiple layers of opposition. Nehemiah rides into town with the cavalry and the king's commission in verse 9. And the very next verse in the story, we see Satan's strident opposition to the things of God. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the cavalry. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people. What did they not like? That somebody cared about the people of God and the work of God. And they were going to oppose it from the minute they could get into it. You see, not everyone is excited to see God's work extended. Satanically situated, next door, lie a dastardly duo bent on disruption and destruction. Nehemiah was doing the work of God. But Satan had his minions on retainer and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people. Now, let me tell you, where there are two, Satan can raise up three, can't he? Yeah. So, so God has now turned on the light. There was darkness over Israel. He turned on the light. He sent Nehemiah by prayer. And when you turn on the light, the roaches are seen. I lived in Chicago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Verse 19 lists those roaches. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You see, Satan had pre-positioned opposition. The opposition was already waiting in the wings. And his man had status. And his man had position. And extra biblical literature tells us that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. And his line will serve in that role for more than a century. He's going to be a, a, a powerful person in a position of opposition for a long time to the people of God. Now, what's in a name? Sanballat. You know, we've talked about hipster names and they don't pick that one. Let's talk about Sanballat. Sanballat means sin has begotten. Another way of saying that is sin gives life. That's His name. Now, sin is the name of the Sumerian moon god. So the Sumerian moon god gives life is what it means literally. But metaphorically, don't miss it. God says the wages of sin is... Satan's man in diabolic irony wears a name in direct opposition to God's position and says, no, 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 no. Sin brings life. So it is today, my friend. Some leaders today still call evil good and good evil. God has decreed, but man disagrees. And friends, both of them cannot be correct. Which is why Romans 3-4 says, in these kind of conflicts, let God be true and every man a liar. I want you to also notice this is a homegrown foe. Sanballat the Horonite. The Horonites were from Beth Horon. And that's ten miles northwest of Jerusalem. Later in Scripture, we learn that two of Sanballat's sons' names end in a shortened version of Yahweh. There's a boy named Deliah and Shalmaliah, and both of those are shortened forms of Yahweh. And so so Sanballat is a distortion and a perversion of biblical religion. He represents a syncretistic pollution to the truth of Scripture. Uh, The Samaritan people, we find out in Jesus' day, have redacted the Bible. They took out what they don't like. They inserted what they wanted. Uh, They replaced Jerusalem as the locus of God's focus, and they substituted their own mountain, Mount Gerizim, didn't they? And then they say, we are the true believers. When they're actually polluters, and deceivers, and pretenders. Sanballat will be a powerful foe through our story in Nehemiah. It's not going to go away in a day. And he is aided by another roach. Let me introduce you to another roach. Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah was probably the governor of the Ammonite territories which lie east of Judah. And if so, the Ammonites were one of Israel's historic enemies. Tobiah it would appear as another, synchristic compromiser. Uh, his son, Johanan, was a, a Yahwistic name. And Nehemiah 6 tells us that his son is shockingly married to some of the leaders of the people of God in the remnant. He's getting his tentacles in as best as he can to get as close to the warp and woof of the people of God to cause as much trouble amongst them as he possibly can. Friends, do you know that Satan loves to weave his yarn of harm as deep into our tapestry as we will let him? The third roach is now added to our coach, and his name is Geshem the Arab. Geshem the Arab was king of Kedar in Arabia. Now, this is a vast area. It's notionally and loosely under Persian control, but it is occupied by the Arabian tribes. It incorporated North Arabia and Edom and the Judea and Negev and extended even into parts of Egypt. And so if you look at a map, you're going to see that Nehemiah was utterly geographically surrounded. Sanballat the Samaritan is to the north. Tobiah the Ammonite is to the east. And Geshem the Arab is to his south. And you go, well, wait a minute. What about the west? To the west is the Mediterranean Sea. Nowhere to go. He's surrounded by enemies. The only flank not in surrounded is the flank that he can't retreat to because it's water and they have no navy. So here is Nehemiah. And he's utterly encircled on all sides on day one of his mission that God sent him to do. Listen to how the opposition tries to stop the work of God. In verse 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab, they heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. Now pay attention to that. Jeered at us and despised us. The people of God being mocked for doing the work of God is nothing new under the sun. Amen? Nehemiah was at the very epicenter of the will of God, and yet the enemies of God ridiculed him still. And so jeering and sneering and disdaining and despising. Friends, didn't our Lord talk about this? In John 15, 18, Jesus Christ said to us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So let's think about Jesus made that prediction. Let's go to the book of Acts and see how that works out. In the very first sermon, in the church age, at, the book, at Pentecost, there were folks there who said those Christians are drunks. Did you remember in Acts 2? Uh, the Greek philosophers called Paul a babbler at Mars Hill. Festus accused Paul of being out of his mind. Christians today are always taken aback when we're the butt of jokes. But why are we surprised when God has gone out of His way to say, you know what, this is how it's going to sometimes be and that's okay. Sticks and stones... Like Grow up. Do you know what happens when you're offended? Nothing happens. You're offended. Do you know what happens when people make fun of you? Nothing happens. Unless you're made of glass and you quit. Christians today are taken aback when the culture pokes fun at Christians. But the Holy Spirit said we should not be surprised by this. The Holy Spirit moved the pen of the Apostle Peter to write, Beloved, do not be surprised. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, you know what you should do with the test? You should pass it. You're tested, do you love me more than ridicule? Pass the test. When the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, it's not unique to you. All of my people have always had this challenge. You're a peculiar people, a called out people. We're happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Is that how we look at it? I hope we do. I hope we do. Now, Satan knows that ridicule is one of the most effective means to discourage certain saints from service. He also knows that ridicule can turn boldness into silence about Jesus. You see, uh, smirks from jerks nor jeers and sneers from our derisive peers did not stop Nehemiah, did they? Because kingdom accomplishers expect multiple layers of opposition so they cling to God instead of being paralyzed by the enemy's insults. You understand the difference between kingdom accomplishers and mere dreamers? Everybody wants God to do something great in their day. But when it costs something, that's when the winnowing happens. Nehemiah responded in verse 20 to the insults of the enemy from multiple fronts when all the roaches got together and sang the roach chorus of disdain. Nehemiah, verse 20, and I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we His servants will arise and build. Nehemiah doesn't say, look at me, I'm here and I've got it all together. He says, look to God and we can do this together. Look to God at Calvary. And work together for God at Calvary. The enemy encircled. The enemy ridiculed. The enemy falsely accused. Listen to what he said. What is this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. That's a lie. That's an outright lie. They weren't rebelling against the king. They were doing actually what the king had given them permission. Now this was a very effective lie. Because it was the same lie that was trotted out way back in the days of Ezra and it was used to shut down the work for a season and so Satan tried an old lie from an old liar. Now Satan has only so many tricks, doesn't he? He has to recycle them continually because he only has so many. But too often we let him triumph because we, we tremble and we stumble instead of persevere and overcome. What do the Scriptures tell us to do? Persevere and overcome but we tremble and we stumble at the same old dirty tricks. Look at verse 20. He goes to God. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we His servants will arise and build. The animosity of Israel's neighbors who were greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people did not lead God's man to compromise, nor to capitulate to what they intended. Instead, Nehemiah just called a spade a spade. You have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem. Very diplomatic, isn't it? You have no right, no claim, no portion here. It is no recent development that Jerusalem is in contention, my friends. The enemies of God have been in contention for the holy city of God since God named it His holy city. Did you know that? All through Scripture, it has been this way. It did not start in 1948. It did not start uh, in in 1967. It did not start when Gaza hived off. It did not start when certain people moved an embassy. It did not start then. You see, the hostilities were the same in Nehemiah's day, and they're going to continue until Messiah's day. Folks are rewriting history in front of us right now. But the God of history makes clear that those who reject the God of the Bible, you have no portion, no rights, no claim in Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. Somebody's right and somebody's not. Now, since kingdom accomplishers understand there will be multiple layers of opposition, God gave us point three. Kingdom accomplishers understand, therefore, the need to work with discretion. Because just as you're willing to work under official sanction, just as you understand there's going to be opposition, because you understand there's opposition means you're going to have to work with discretion. It's things you don't say to some people sometimes because it's not helpful. All things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. You've read that in the New Testament, right? So, kingdom accomplishers understand the need to work with discretion. I want you to look at verse 12 and look at the discretion in Nehemiah's very artful execution of following the will of God. In verse 12, the Bible says, I arose in the night. Why did he do it at night? Everybody else is asleep. They won't see what's happening. And I took a few men with me. Why didn't he take a few hundred men with him? Because everybody would know he was doing it. And I told no one. Why did he tell no one? because he didn't want everyone to know what God had put in his heart. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God can tell a leader, you're going to take them here, and He'll slowly reveal who you're supposed to tell in the inner circle and finally all the people. Uh, There was no animal with me. Why? Because the more animals, the more clippity-clop in the night, the more people that wake up, what are they doing out there? (laughs) Nosy McNosington comes out to know what they ought not know because their main purpose in life is to disseminate half-truths rapidly. So I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And so then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. It wasn't time for everyone to know. Just a few were to know. Kingdom accomplishers understand the need for discretion. Nehemiah waited three days when he got to the city. Why didn't he go out the first night at night? Everybody'd be watching him. Why didn't he go out the second night? Maybe he was tired from a long overland journey, so everybody'd be... You don't want to talk. Watching him! It's, it's, it's a kind of a give me, right? <laughs> everybody'd be watching him. But by the third night, he's just going to go to bed like he did last night, the night before, and so nobody was watching him. He's a smart little guy, isn't he? All right. So kingdom accomplishers understand the need for discretion. Nehemiah waited three days upon his arrival before he got down to business. He needed to assess, who do I trust? There's all these people, there's friends and pretend friends, and when you first get somewhere, you don't know who's who in the zoo. So he began to investigate the problem firsthand. And when he went, in the dead of night, And he did that so the watching eye of Sauron and his minions wouldn't see him doing the work of walking around the walls and seeing firsthand what needed to be done. He took just a trusted few with him. Only a few knew what he was about to do. The man of God on mission for God must be careful who's in his inner circle. Amen? He must guard the inner circle. Also notice that even official sanction does not negate the multiple layers of opposition. So the man of God must operate with discretion. It doesn't mean he's sneaky. It means that he's wise. Then I arose in the night, and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do. The same Nehemiah who marches into Jerusalem surrounded by the king's officer with the full of the cavalry's clattering cadence wisely decides to do his investigation utterly clandestine in the cover of darkness utmost discretion i told no one what my god had put in my heart to do and there was no animal with me but the one i rode on now friends the wisest man who ever lived told us in proverbs ten nineteen. you might want to write it in your bible Next to where Nehemiah rides out at night in the quiet and doesn't tell many people. Proverbs 10:19, "When words are many, sin is not absent. but he who holds his tongue is wise. The Holy Spirit reminds us in Proverbs 21:23, "He who guards his mouth, and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Instead of blurting out any old thing, God's word chides us in Proverbs 15:28, Proverbs 15:28, "The heart of the righteous ponders." How to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Which is why David, a man after God's own heart, prays in Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Man after God's own heart, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Friends, they used to say in World War II when we had a navy, loose lips, Sink, Ships, you're getting better. Gold star for those of you that responded. Proverbs 17:28 agrees: Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Proverbs 12:13 puts it plainly: "An evil man is trapped by his sinful talk, but a righteous man escapes trouble. Colossians 4.6 says this, Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Do you know how to answer some people? By saying nothing. Do you know how to answer some people? By saying nothing. The French writer André Moreau once wrote, Sincerity is like glass, but discretion is like a diamond. Sincerity is like glass, but discretion is like a diamond. There are times to be discreet. There are times when kingdom accomplishers know when to hold things close to their chest, when to bring in an inner circle, and when to launch out publicly and tell the story. In Ecclesiastes 3, the wisest man who ever lived says, for everything there is a a season. A time for... Every matter under heaven, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And they're not the same times. Now, if at all possible, friends, if we want to be kingdom accomplishers, friends, we ought to strive to work under official sanction, amen? Not work around the system, see if we can work through the system. Sometimes that's going to require that we have a lot more patience than we were born with. Sometimes it's going to seem inefficient. But you know what? God's ways are always sufficient. And the ends always end up honoring Jesus. See, we can do our means to run ahead of God, but that doesn't mean we're going to honor God. Moses knew he was supposed to release the people, so he killed that servant. And the people didn't rise up and follow Him. He had to run away for 40 years to get His heart right. We don't do our things our way. We do things God's way. And God does things when we wait patiently for Him to intervene. Our efficiencies can lead to deficiencies whereby we achieve the work and we tear apart the unity amongst the workers. Amen? We may well finish the task, but we may well fail to bring glory to God in the task. And so as we seek official sanction, and we understand that there are multiple layers of opposition, it means sometimes we must work with discretion. We must speak with discretion. Jesus said this, we must be gentle as doves and true as serpents, the words of Jesus, because He knows a bit about this fallen world. We must understand that not all ears benefit from all truth at all times. So we must have discretion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Your Word is a fountain for us to drink from. It is the Word of life. I am continuously amazed at Jesus. I think of the early church fathers, and I forget Gregory of somewhere said something like Jesus was the bread of life, but in his first temptation he was hungry. And Jesus is the river of life, living waters, and yet at his death he cried out, I thirst. Lord Jesus, You are all we need. You are an all-sufficient Savior. Let us know when to pursue official sanction. Let us know and be reminded that there will be multiple layers of opposition. and It isn't necessarily a sign that we're not doing the will of God. It's very probably a sign that we're in the center of Your will and the enemy can't stand it. And so, Lord, help us to know when we need discretion, And when we need to unfurl the banner of truth, that the truth might set us free. Lord, these are tricky things. We have not gone this way before, as you said to your servant, through your servant Joshua in Joshua chapter 3, I believe. Lord Jesus, help us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Help us not to grieve the Spirit, not to delay when He says go, and not to run ahead when we think we know the way we ought to go. We are mindful that your word says that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of the dawn, getting ever brighter till the fullness of day. You give us enough light so that we don't leave the path and we don't stumble and tumble on the path. But very often we don't really understand where the path is taking us until we watch much longer and the light gets much higher. And then we see why you led us the way you led us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.